turn to Daniel chapter 1. Uh, if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, I think it's 1473. I looked it up earlier this week, but uh, it's somewhere in there to the right of the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and so on is Daniel. And uh, we are in the second week of our series on the book of Daniel. Last week, we talked about kind of what it means to be in exile in a culture that is hostile to our beliefs and our values. What does that look like for us as Christians? How do we live? Do we kind of retreat into our own little enclaves? Do we, you know, assimilate and, and kind of become one with the culture? Or is there a middle ground? And we talked about what it means to be a creative minority. And I'm not going to get into all of that just for the sake of time this morning, but I want to really encourage you, if you weren't here last week, uh, go listen to the podcast, get caught up, because that kind of frames our entire discussion uh, for Daniel for the summer. And so I uh, hope you do that. We're going to jump right into Daniel chapter 1 this morning. I'm not going to read the whole, the whole thing. I encourage you to do that on your own. But uh, I do want to start, uh, start us out here, Daniel chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 1. We read, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the, in the treasure house of his God. And the idea here was like, hey, my God beat up your God. <laughs> you know, well, our God's better, so we're going to take all your stuff that your God has in his temple, and we're going to bring it back to our temple. That, that was kind of the idea uh, that happened a lot back in those days, because they thought gods were sort of regional, and uh, certain people groups, and it was like, hey, we've defeated you, now, now our God must be better than your God. And imagine for a minute how gut-wrenching that must have been if you're a young man like Daniel. There's a whole world of heartbreak, really, in these first two verses. And the heartbreak is this, that God made a promise to Abraham a long time ago. He says, I'm going to be your God, and your people are going to be my people, and I'll give you a promised land, and I will make you a new community, and I will make you a blessing to the world. And that promise had sustained the people of Israel for century after century. It was all they had. And that community had a lot of ups and downs through the years. You know, you had centuries of slavery in Egypt, and then God uses Moses to deliver them, but then they end up wandering in the desert for 40 years. Finally, they get to the promised land, and eventually they reach their peak under King David and King Solomon, and Solomon builds this glorious temple, and after that, it was kind of all downhill. There's this, this long, slow decline. And the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel, which ends up getting destroyed. And you got the southern kingdom of Judah. And because of their disobedience to God and their refusal to repent from, from idolatry and immorality and injustice, it just was rampant in the nation. As, as Daniel writes, the Lord delivered the nation into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and he destroys all that's left of God's dream. The temple's a memory. Its sacred contents were now preserved in the temple of pagan gods. And Daniel, Daniel's a young teenager when this happened, 13, 14, 15 years old. And we read verse 3 that the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, his number one guy, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine 
from the king's table. It doesn't mean they were eating his leftovers. It just means that this is the same kind of food that the king was eating. All this rich stuff is great. I'm like, I've been going to all of these grad parties, you know, and it's like this banquet. Like, who doesn't want that? It's like all this stuff laid out and food everywhere. And that was the idea here. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. This three-year indoctrination and culturation type period. And among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now here's the thing about Daniel. Okay, Daniel never expected to end up in Babylon. Daniel was one of the best and brightest in Israel. He was smart. He was well-educated. He was affluent. He was physically flawless, strikingly handsome. He was devoted to God and God's community, and he would have had all the same dreams that young men like that have. And his future in, in Judah would have been quite predictable. You know, go to a great school, then on to success in whatever field that he chose, make a great marriage, live in an enviable home, raise a wonderful family, occupy a prominent place in the temple. But life did not turn out the way that he planned. Maybe you can relate to that. Well, Daniel would become an adult and he would spend the rest of his life in a foreign land. He would lose his family. He would lose his culture. He'd have to speak a different language, a foreign language. He would live and die in a place that he never wanted to be and he would never go home. He even loses his name. Look at verse 7. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Avednego. Now, this is a big, big deal, okay? Because in the ancient world, your name is more than just a label, like, hey, Joe, hey, Phil, hey, Bob, whatever. It, it, it was your identity. And it was more than that. It, it was your destiny. It was usually kind of prophetic, your name was. And each of their Hebrew names had a reference to God in it. Either the little syllable El from Elohim, which means Lord, so Daniel and uh, Mishael, or the syllable Yah for Yahweh, Hananiah and Azariah. And their Hebrew names reminded them that they belonged to God. And now all four boys are renamed after gods from the Babylonian pantheon. This was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, hey, look, You've got a, a new king now. You've got new loyalties. Give yourself to me and allow Babylon to define your identity. Well, the name um, Daniel actually means Yahweh is my judge or the Lord will be my judge. And his whole life long, every time Daniel had heard his name spoken, it was a reminder, the Lord will set things right. The Lord will set things right. The Lord will see that justice is done. And his very name had been a promise every time he heard it for every day of his life. But now he's not Daniel anymore. He's Belteshazzar. The Lord was not setting things right. In fact, it looked like the whole plan was just shattered. The whole promise that they had held on to for so long. So what do you do when you end up in Babylon? Because you will. Last week, we, we talked about the parallels between Babylon and sort of the culture that we find ourselves in today. But let's make it personal for a moment. See, Babylon is the place where life does not turn out the way that you planned. Maybe a relationship or, or even a marriage ends. And you had such dreams for it, but it's, it's at the end. Um, maybe it happens when one of your, your greatest vocational hopes die. You, you hope to be this one day. And now that's not going to happen. 
Maybe it happens when somebody you knew and loved wounds you deeply. We've had that happen to us. Maybe it happens when you realize a deep prayer that you cherished will never be answered the way that you want it. And you find yourself in Babylon, just cut off from the life that you wanted and planned on, and you may never get home. And worse yet, you kind of wonder, does God even know? Does God care? Like, how could God let this happen? Has God forgotten his promise? Does God even notice? What do you do when you find yourself like Daniel in Babylon? Now, there's a whole field of uh, social sciences that study uh, people who have survived um, major suffering, crises, uh, trauma of all sorts. They did research and studies of survivors of World War II prison camps and studies of 3,000 POW uh, soldiers in the Korean War who went through brainwashing attempts. And people who have been in hostage situations, people who have had traumatic accidents, people who have spent their lives waiting for the Vikings to win the Super Bowl. All sorts of trauma. And many of those people, as you might expect, just get defeated by difficult ordeals. They they experience a a loss of hope and isolation and, and defeat, and they just withdraw. But interestingly enough, there are some people who don't just survive these traumatic events. They actually enlarge their capacity to handle problems and strengthen their ability to persist and to endure and to, to be tenacious. So that in the end, they haven't just survived, they've grown. They've actually grown on trauma. And researchers have come to call these folks resilient. Resilient. They call uh, this quality resiliency. It's the the capacity to thrive in challenging or difficult situations. It's the ability to bounce back when life trips you up. Okay, And they found that there's certain common characteristics or, or qualities of spirit that tend to mark resilient people. And Daniel, in him, we find one of the most spiritually resilient people in human history. At the beginning of his life, as we've seen, he lost everything. And yet, with God's help, in Babylon, Daniel learned not to just survive, but to thrive. So this morning, I want to walk through Daniel chapter 1 and point out some characteristics that make for spiritual resilience. Look down at verse 8. We see that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And the very first characteristic of a spiritually resilient person that we find is that spiritually resilient people resolve. They they make this deep decision to, to honor their deepest values. They refuse to live as passive victims of circumstances beyond their control. They, they refuse to get tangled up in all the stuff that would cause them to betray their deepest commitments. They resolve to honor their deepest values and, and they honor God. Now, in many ways, like verse 8, this is kind of the hinge uh, point of the whole story. Because in the first chapter, like so far, uh, uh, everything that happens to this point is all Babylon doing. It's Nebuchadnezzar. We read Nebuchadnezzar determines to conquer Israel and he determines to cart off its most sacred objects and its highest potential citizens. And he determines to enroll them in his leadership academy. And he decides on the entrance criteria and he decides on the subject matter. And the the dean of the school decides uh, their new names and he determines their identities and their menu. And the easiest thing in the world would have been for Daniel just to be like, you know, 
feel like he's a passive victim of circumstances way too big for him. But from verse 8 on, the initiative shifts in this whole story. It basically shifts for the entire book. And, And the writer shows us in a real colorful way that gets lost in most of our translations, but the same verb gets repeated three times. So kind of a literal rendering of verse 7 would be, the chief of staff determined new names for them. He determined on Belshazzar for Daniel and so on. And then verse 8, but Daniel determined not to defile himself. It's the same verb repeated over and over, but this time it's Daniel who's doing the determining. Daniel the captive. Daniel, the prisoner, he makes a decision. And the writer uses a word for a quality decision. So you could translate it, Daniel resolved in his heart that he would honor God. He would not defile himself. He just decides. Somehow, this teenage boy found the courage to stare down Babylon. No compromise. No compromise. And I would argue that's what this story is all about. That that temptation to compromise. Because there's lots of dangers in exile, but this is at the top of the list of the dangers that we face in Babylon. Now, Daniel's got to take action, so he goes to the dean of the school to talk about the menu. And in the ancient Near East, in particular in Jewish culture, your diet or the food that you would eat or would not eat was kind of a cultural marker and and even a spiritual marker. So it was a sign of your spirituality and which God you worship, especially if you're a Jew. And the text isn't clear exactly why this food would defile Daniel. You know, some people think, oh, it's not kosher, or it was a sacrifice to idols or something like that, but nobody's really sure. But it is clear to Daniel that he needs to draw a line, and he needed to take a stand. And you got to understand how much courage it took for Daniel, like, to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar, because he's not the type of guy who cut people a lot of slack. Uh, In 2 Kings 25, this puppet king in Israel named Zedekiah rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he he, uh, captures Zedekiah and his family, has Zedekiah's sons killed before his eyes, and then has Zedekiah's eyes put out so the last thing he would see would be his sons uh, being killed. Then he loses his eyes. Now you've heard of leaders with like a hands-on management style and a hands-off management style. Nebuchadnezzar was a heads-off management style. Like, you cross him, he cut off your head. Yeah. How many of you have ever had a really tough boss? A real tough boss? So tough that, you know, like when he terminated people, he terminated people? That's Nebuchadnezzar, okay? That's, that's what Daniel's dealing with here. But Daniel determines something. He remembers his name. Daniel doesn't view himself as a helpless pawn of circumstances beyond his control. And he resolves in his heart. There's just this magnificent courage and initiative that he takes here. And spiritually resilient people are that way. They resolve to honor God and they figure out whatever it takes to do that. Now it's going to take some effort on Daniel's part. Uh, He goes to the dean of the school, makes this request, and the dean's like, yeah, but if I say yes to you, you know, you're going to look all scrawny and, you know, weak and you're going to lack energy and the king will have my head. That's his answer. And we see Daniel's persistence and and kind of his street smarts. And Daniel says to himself, well, that's not a yes, but it's not exactly a no either. So he goes to the guard, the next level down in the org chart, and he proposes an experiment. He says, hey, let's just try this for 10 days. You know, give us this veggie platter and then uh, then see, you you be the judge. Judge for yourself. And Daniel has faith that God will work and God does work. 
In fact, the guard is so impressed with what happens to Daniel and his friends, he allows them to keep their veggies and Daniel and his friends graduate at the top of his class. But that only happens because when everything looked like it was lost and Daniel was up against very powerful forces, he resolved in his heart he would honor God. He resolved in his heart he would not get tangled up with anything that would cause him to betray his deepest values. Uh, So let me ask you this. Anywhere you're getting tangled up in life. Ken Davis uh, tells the story of a biker uh, sitting at this red light. And this guy, you know, he was kind of classic biker. Got the leather jacket. He's got the chains hanging down, skull and crossbones stuff, you know, old hanky, you know, tied around his head. He's sitting on the biggest, meanest looking Harley Davidson you've ever seen. Ken says, it sounded like thunder. And an 85-year-old man pulled up alongside him on a moped. Have you ever heard a moped? (laughs) There's nothing thundery about a moped. Well, that old man looked over at that bike. You could just see his eyes were filled with amazement. And he says, that's a beautiful bike. Can I take a look at it? The biker sneered at him and said, yeah, if you want to look at it, it'll look at it. So the old man got his face about that far from the, the bike, and he just looks over every inch of it. Man, he said, I'll bet that goes fast. And the biker thought, I'll show him how fast it goes. And the light turns green, and he pops a wheelie, and within 30 seconds, he's doing 200 miles an hour. And he glances in the rearview mirror, and there's just this little dot in the rearview mirror. But it's getting bigger, and something was gaining on him, and it went by him so fast he didn't even see what it was. It just disappeared over the horizon. Pretty soon he saw something coming back the other way, and as it went past him, he recognized it was the old man on the moped. And he looks in his rearview mirror and it disappeared into a little dot. Then he saw it coming back again. So he stops his bike and that moped hit the back of that big old Harley Davidson and it destroyed the back of the bike. And of course, the moped is nothing but metal. And the old man's just lying on the ground groaning. And the biker got up and he says, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? Is, is there anything I can do for you? And the old man said, yeah, could you unhook my suspenders from your handlebars for me? It's a very vivid image, isn't it? This is what Ken goes on to write. He says, you and I would never purposely hook our suspenders to anything dangerous. And yet many of us might be willing to lean over for a closer look. The world around us is littered with the mangled lives of men and women who never intended to get hooked. They only wanted to get a closer look at the shiny colors of some forbidden sin. The husband who never intended to lose his family, but decided it was okay to flirt around the boundaries of adultery. And now he pulls himself from the wreckage of a smoking marriage. Got tangled up in Babylon. The business person who decides that cutting an ethical corner here or there will make a ride to the top quicker. Now she's on a collision waiting to happen. So many people never intended to sabotage a marriage or a friendship. They just drift into resentment or bitterness. Or revenge. So many people just walk away from God. Because like we said last week, it's not cool to stick out as a Jesus follower. So we just compromise a little bit just to kind of fit in. And people start to grow numb and apathetic. And eventually many just stop following Jesus. And it's not usually one big thing. It happens one little compromise at a time. Just small incremental decisions that have a massive effect on our long-term life. 
Because sins numb us. And little sins are the worst because we don't realize the cumulative effect that little sins have on us over time. So I just want to pause right here and create space for you to ask the Holy Spirit, you know, is there something right now that just sort of pops in your heart or in your mind? You're thinking about, well, maybe, I'm not sure, but maybe that's an area of compromise. Maybe it has to do with integrity or alcohol or a justice issue. Maybe it's your sexuality or a money or consumerism issue. Maybe it's a gossip issue. Maybe it's just this integrity issue. I just lie a little, leave this little detail out, cut a corner. Maybe it's theological disloyalty to Christ. Because you know what the New Testament clearly teaches and what Jesus clearly teaches, but you don't really like it, so you found a way to explain it away, make it fit your late, modern, Western worldview. I have no idea. My point here isn't to make you feel guilty, but does anything come to mind? Maybe it's not a compromise issue, because sometimes we get tangled up in more subtle enemies, hurry, or success, or a relationship. And some of you are here today, and you're seeing yourselves as helpless victims of circumstances beyond your control, maybe decisions other people have made. God's calling you to be like Daniel. Just make a resolution in your heart that will take courage and wisdom to carry it out. And you can do this. This is required for spiritual resiliency. It's required if you're going to survive and thrive in Babylon. And we all live in Babylon. We all live in a world that will try to tempt us or intimidate us into settling for less than God's best. So what do you need to resolve in your heart? This is your day. This is your one and only life. You must resolve in your heart. And I'll tell you why so much is at stake here. See, in the future, Daniel and his friends would have to make some very difficult decisions. And if Daniel and his friends had not drawn the line here and had not declared to the world and to themselves where their deepest allegiance belonged, they would never have had the strength to face the furnace or the lion's den. Some of you have hooked up your suspenders to the wrong thing and you're feeling the pain right now. You resolve today, I will honor God. I will not hand over this life that God's given me to any power in Babylon. Not any person, not any relationship, not any job, not any habit, not any force, not any schedule. I'll resolve in my heart, I will honor God. Second quality of resilient people. Spiritually resilient people are committed to living in community because they recognize it's a life or death deal. For Daniel, he found this little small group that he formed with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they would go through this school together. They surely studied and prayed together and faced decisions together. And they would one day face the furnace together. And they would one day help rule together. And this small group of devoted believers would change the course of a nation. See, when you live in Babylon, you will not survive and thrive outside a community. You just won't. Julius Siegel is one of the primary researchers in this whole area of resiliency. And he writes this, he says, Few captives 
suffered more than Vice Admiral James Stockdale, who served 2,714 days as a POW in Vietnam, seven and a half years. On one occasion, his captors shackled his legs and arms and left him in glaring sunshine three blistering days, while guards beat him repeatedly to keep him from sleeping. After one beating, Stockdale heard a towel snapping out in a code that the POWs had devised, a message he would never forget, was five letters, G-B-U-J-S. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. And Siegel writes that for these POWs, the briefest experiences of community, of being connected, became literally a life or death deal. Their devotion and ingenuity to making community happen in spite of unbelievable obstacles defies belief. He writes that if one man walked by another cell, he would drag his sandals in code to send a message. And men would send messages to their comrades through the noises that they make shaking out their blankets by belching, snoring, blowing their noses, or other bodily noises typically mastered by 10-year-old boys. Now, this is what's so ironic to me. See, where community is so difficult, people will move heaven and earth and risk their lives just for a moment of it. And where it's so available, we often don't even devote adequate time and effort to it. Community, deep friendship, spiritual intimacy, they don't come easy. You got to fight for them. So many times I'll be talking to somebody and, and they're just struggling with some difficult problem. And I'll ask them, are you in community? Like, do you have a small group of trusted Christian sisters and brothers to support you and help you and pray for you? give you wisdom. And so often they say, well, no, no, I tried it once, but it didn't work out. Try again. Try as often as you need to try. Make time for it. Pray, learn, grow, reach out. There are people in this room right now who are ready to give up. Maybe one of them sitting next to you. Wonder if you have any idea what a difference it makes when you take the time to say, God bless you, I'm praying for you, your life counts. See, people need to hear the code. Not just hostages and POWs, but people in this room need to hear the code. And as a church family, we need not to let anybody out of this room without hearing somebody say, I'm glad you're here. You matter to me. Don't you give up. Spiritually resilient people will never be resilient outside of vibrant community. Third quality, spiritually resilient people remember that their life, and even their suffering, has meaning and purpose in the eyes of God. This is so interesting to me. Researchers say the factor that most often causes people to give up is not when their suffering gets more intense. It's when they believe their suffering has no meaning or purpose. It's not the intensity of the suffering, it's the meaninglessness of it. Again, researchers who study this sort of thing found that suicide notes rarely speak of failing health or rejection or finances or even physical pain. They say things like, there's no point in going on. There's no reason for me to keep living. 
See, Daniel was about to discover something in Babylon he would never have known if he spent his whole life in Israel like he planned. He was to discover that there was somebody who was at work in Babylon. See if you can figure out who it is. Look down at verse 17. Let's kind of go backwards here. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Up at verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. In verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who's the character that keeps getting mentioned? It's God. The writer is convinced that God is at work right from the start. He knows what many Israelites did not know. He's convinced that even the defeat of Judah and the loss of the temple that looked so tragic was not a random, meaningless event. God was not asleep. God had not broken his promise or forgotten his dream. God was up to something in Babylon, this place of great suffering. God, as it turns out, loved even Babylon. God, as it turns out, even cares about old Nebuchadnezzar. God sees something in him. And here's the thing about these these characteristics or these qualities of a resilient person. They are not just the product of a strong character. Each of these qualities grow out of a deep dependence on God. Last week, we looked at Jeremiah 29, which is part of this letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon, which included Daniel and his friends. But we stopped before we got to maybe what's the best known part of this letter. Look at verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I want us to close this morning just by singing those words to Jeremiah 29, 11. Because this verse applies to all of God's people. Because we all live in Babylon. And so as we sing this, I want you just to remember, whatever you suffer this day or sometime in the future, God's with you. God's with you, whoever you are and whatever Babylon you find yourself in. God's up to something in Babylon. So you resolve to honor him. Let's stand as we sing together.